And as people become Christians, they hopefully start reading the Bible, understanding the Bible, get a little bit more under their belt, get a handle on what it says about God and man and Jesus, salvation. But for some, even after becoming a Christian for decades, there's one category of theology that remains aloof, and that's end times. They might know a buzzword or two, but most people, they just default to believe whatever their church believes. They've never really studied it. Who can be bothered? It's such a huge, massive topic, both in Scripture and with what other Christians have said. There's, there's a horde of competing views. It's just a, a pervasive, vast subject, and many are intimidated to even put their t- toe in the water. They rather would just stay out. I mean, who, ha- who has time to sort out all the different views on things to come? You know, why bother? And it is true that setting in times, or eschatology as it's known, can be challenging because it does require a strong understanding of Scripture in general, and there are many competing views. But Christians should bother because God's Word is clear, and times do matter, and they've been revealed for a reason. God has revealed them for our edification. We're meant to live in light of the end. And to do that, though, we need to rightly understand the end. The book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing to those who read it and heed it. It's not given to be ununderstandable. Blessing is to be found in understanding what God has revealed about the end. And our goal this evening is to try and do just that. We're gathered for a final lesson in this basic Bible doctrine series. We've made our way through all the major branches of theology, doing about a one lesson per uh, evening on these major uh, segments of doctrine or theology. And our goal has just been to discover what God's Word says about some major topics like God, man, Christ, salvation, the Holy Spirit, and so forth. And we've covered a lot of ground, even though we're leaving a lot out, but we're trying to keep things relatively basic, at least give you an introduction, uh, introduction to these issues, uh, to at least spur you on for further learning. That will definitely be the case tonight. The last subject we have in store is end times, last things, eschatology. And because there are so many different views out there, this probably is the largest branch of theology. If you're incorporating what what everyone has to say about it, it can get real big really fast. There's no way we can be exhaustive in one night's time. But I do think we can give you a solid overview of the playing field. The field is vast. There are many players on it. I think probably the best way to serve you tonight with this series is just to give you a a higher level overview of things to come, help you get a lay of the land. We're going to expose you to different views and positions. We're not going to spend a lot of time arguing for or against really most of them. We just don't have that time. But hopefully this can be a, a solid jumping off point for even further Bible study. It is a vast topic, but even though we will just wade into the shallow this evening, hopefully it does encourage you that it is understandable. You can wade further and keep getting to know what the Lord has said about things to come. Now to get started, I'm going to take some time to expose you to just some of the key differences in understanding eschatology and give you a little taste of the different views out there. And then we'll spend kind of the second half of our time exploring things to come, at least from this church's perspective. So first, I'm going to expose you to different views. You may say an introduction to the eschatology playing field. Three sets of differences. First, let's talk about different ways of understanding the timing of biblical prophecy. Different ways of understanding the timing of biblical prophecy. How do we understand the timing of prophetic events? And you might be surprised to learn that not all believe that end times of prophecies take place in the end of time. Some believe that they belong in the past or the present. So it's valuable to get familiar with these different approaches to prophecy because they're obviously going to affect how you interpret the Bible and what the path you take, where you end up. So three general views here. First is called preterism. Preterism. It's a view of biblical timing which holds that all or or most prophetic events took place in the past. Most, if not all, biblical prophecies have already been fulfilled. Usually they point to AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. As, as that time. Some in this group refer to themselves as partial preterists, where most prophecies were fulfilled in AD 70, not the second coming, not the new heavens, not the new earth, not the resurrection, but pretty much everything else was fulfilled in AD 70. Others are, are full preterists, where they, they take a, a spiritual second coming, a spiritual new heavens, new earth. We're in the new heavens, new earth right now. They're full preterists. 
Preterists base their beliefs on some similarities between biblical prophecies and the events of AD 70, as well as all the passages that describe end times as soon or near. And preterism rose to its greatest popularity in the 18th century. But as you can probably imagine, it's going to require a spiritualization of a lot of biblical prophecy to fit it all in AD 70. The second uh, understanding of timing would be historicism. It's called historicism. This is a view of biblical prophecy that, that puts prophetic events not really in the past or the future, but in the present, where you're, you're viewing fulfillment in your present day. That there's no future distinct age of fulfillment. That age is right now. And so when you see earthquakes, wars, and famines in the news, whether it's now or in the 1600s, you're seeing it as fulfillment of prophecy. Popes and presidents are interpreted to be antichrist figures. All current events are interpreted in light of biblical prophecy. Really, a historicist view of end times rose to prominence during the Reformation, where many of the reformers were, were in this camp. That The Catholic Church was viewed as an evil empire. Many of them identified the Pope as the Antichrist in their days. Many of them believed they were living in the last days. Now today, very few people hold to a historicist view of prophecy, although many unknowingly still find themselves uh, interpreting current events as prophetic fulfillment. The last branch here is called futurism. You probably guess what they think. Futurism views the timing of most biblical prophecies as, well, still future. Where the entire book of Revelation, minus the first three chapters, is viewed entirely future and therefore unfulfilled. Notably, they hold Daniel's 70th week, that's a specific prophecy in Daniel 9, as future. And that will still be fulfilled in a future seven-year tribulation period. This tribulation period will see the fulfillment of many other major prophecies, including the second coming of Christ, coming of the kingdom, restoration of Israel. But in general, futurists are seeing most prophecies unfulfilled. It's still future. And futurism was predominant in the early church up until Augustine, when the church uh, switched to amillennialism and, and uh, preterism. A futurist view of Daniel's 70th week, for example, can be found way back in the second century. Futurism was largely lost in the Middle Ages, the Reformation. Past three centuries, though, it's rose to dominance. It's, it's the dominant view now. So much so that many almost take for granted the fact that people believe otherwise, that not everyone thinks end times as things to come, that some Christians today believe end times already happened. Uh, the prophecies already took place. Nonetheless, it's the differences in timing of biblical prophecy, a basic past, present, future look. We here at this church do take a futurist view of prophecy. We think these are still things to come. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Now, number two, a second big difference in the eschatology playing field. Different ways of understanding the millennial kingdom. I guess I'm assuming you know a, a few key terms here. We can't stop for definitions all over the place, but try and stay with me. Different ways of understanding the millennial kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Simply put, in a basic sense, it's the exercise of God's rule over his creation. And God's always on the throne. He's always ruling. But the exercise of his will on earth. Uh, after the fall, although it was per his sovereign will, the, the exercise of his revealed will was thwarted. I mean, God's will is worship God alone and don't sin. But after the fall, that, that will has not been done. Largely, Satan's will is done on earth. And the result is suffering, rebellion, judgment, but God's not going to allow this world to exist in rebellion forever, though. He will reclaim the world, execute judgment, and reestablish the exercise of his rule over the world, i.e. his kingdom. Everyone believes that. There's just differences on what this kingdom of God will be like on its relation to the return of Christ and on its timing. I mean, is this kingdom reign entirely future? Is the kingdom in place right now? Several what and when questions swirl around this topic, leading to different views. These different views on the kingdom, they're largely separated, at least in one sense, by their interpretation of a key passage, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. So after the second coming, that talks about this thousand-year reign of Christ, a millennial kingdom, some reign here. 
passage speaks of a thousand-year reign of Christ with the saints. And so the question is, what do we make of this millennial reign, this millennial kingdom? How does this kingdom relate to the kingdom of God overall and the return of Christ? And so in seeking to answer these questions, three major millennial views have arisen throughout church history. And they're each characterized by a unique interpretation of Revelation 20, that millennial kingdom. And so my goal here, all we can hope to do is just give you a quick special introduction to these three millennial views, exposing you to the playing field. Each view is labeled by how it relates this millennial kingdom to the return of Christ. So post-millennialism believes this kingdom comes uh, that Jesus returns after the thousand years. It's post-millennial. The return takes place, the second coming, after this millennial kingdom. Now, premillennialism believes that Jesus comes back before this thousand-year kingdom. And amillennials, they believe Jesus likewise comes back after the thousand years, but they understand the millennium differently. I'm going to cover all these in just a second. But this issue of the millennium, it is important because it influences our Christian worldview. Is it our responsibility to usher in the millennial kingdom? Or is it already here? We're just to live rightly in it right now. Or is it still entirely future and we are awaiting it? It's going to affect how you live to a degree. Now, this is not the most important theological issue. It does not affect salvation. There's going to be Christians in heaven representing all three views So we can have charity toward these different views. But truth always matters. We want to try and understand God's word as best we can. Let me just expose you to the three views. Start with post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. And they derive their name from the the belief that that Jesus returns after post the thousand-year kingdom or reign. Post-millennial. This means that the millennial kingdom of Revelation 20, it takes place sometime between the first coming and the second coming. But they differ from amillennialism. Uh, amillennials believe that, that the whole church age, the whole age between the first and second coming is the kingdom. But postmillennials believe in, in a, a separate, distinct time that is the actual proper millennial kingdom. Postmillennials view the millennial kingdom as really like a future golden age in this present world. It's a time when the world is Christianized, Christian ethics dominate. The world knows peace and righteousness. So when does this, this age begin? Well, post-millennials believe the church was given the task to build the kingdom, expand it, populate it, usher it in. A key distinctive to post-millennials is that it's the church who ushers in the kingdom. Not Christ at his first coming, not Christ at his second coming, but the church right now is to usher in the coming of this kingdom. Now, how do they do that? Under post-millennialism, how does the church usher in the millennial kingdom? Well, they believe that through the preaching of the gospel, a time will come when basically most people on earth will be saved. Through Christians fulfilling the Great Commission, the world will one day be Christianized. Peace, prosperity, and righteousness will characterize the earth. At the same time, evil forces like Satan and demons will be gradually defeated as kingdom power expands and grows. And when these conditions are met, the millennial kingdom begins. When this distinct millennial kingdom has run its course. What happens next? After a long period of just righteousness, peace, prosperity on earth under the reign really of the church, that's when Jesus returns. He comes back the second coming to receive the kingdom from the church. That's the second coming. That ends human history. There will be one general resurrection of the dead, a final judgment moving into the new heavens, the new earth, the eternal state. So you can see overall, post-millennials have an optimistic view of human history. They think it will get better and better, even though it may not look that way now. They're playing the long game, they would say. That might be another 1,000 years or 2,000 or 10,000. But uh, eventually, they believe the church will fulfill its great commission, Christianize the world, and usher in this kingdom. This is in contrast to the other views, amillennialism and premillennialism, which have more of a pessimistic view. Things are going to get worse before Jesus comes back. Now, speaking of amillennialism, I'm trying to say that fast. It gets a little hard after a while. But this next view, amillennialism, the the name can confuse people because the prefix ah in front of millennialism, 
That means no, so literally it means no millennium. It leads people to think they don't believe in a millennial kingdom. That is not true. What they're rejecting is a literal future earthly thousand-year kingdom. That's what they're reacting against. But they do still believe in a millennial kingdom. It's just that they believe it's right now. All millennials join post-millennials in the belief that the millennial kingdom of Revelation 20 will take place before the second coming of Christ. So this kingdom happens before Christ returns. But they differ from post-millennials in their understanding of this kingdom. And for all millennials, the millennial kingdom represents the entire period between the first coming and the second coming. It's, it's the same thing as the church age. That is the kingdom age, the millennial kingdom. Obviously, they're not taking a thousand years literally. That's fine. They're just this whole age. The kingdom began either with the resurrection or ascension of Christ and will continue until Jesus returns. And after Jesus returns, again, it's end of human history. There's no more kingdom after that. It's a general resurrection of the good and the bad, a final judgment, and then the eternal state. Now, another difference between all millennials and pre and post millennials. Again, it's a belief that this millennial kingdom is not a distinct time separate from the church age. Like we're just, this is the kingdom. This is the expression of God's rule on the earth. God is ruling through the church. And uh, Jesus, they believe Jesus is currently reigning right now as the messianic Davidic king, just like the Old Testament promised. He rules the nations under his feet. But in contrast to post-mill, this is not an earthly rule. It's not a political rule. This is an entirely spiritual rule. All millennials do not believe the world will be Christianized. They likewise have a pessimistic view of history. Things will get worse, that the church will be militant and a remnant, but the world will not be Christianized. Christ is ruling. This is the kingdom, but it's a spiritual rule in the hearts of believers. The world is still going to decay, though, until Christ returns. So there's little optimism for the long-term future, at least before Christ returns. Finally, though, I should mention at the beginning of this millennial kingdom and really on the cross, all millennials believe Satan was bound. So he, in this age, the whole church age, he's bound in the abyss and therefore is not able to deceive the nations, enabling Gentile salvation, some would say. Another little distinctive they have that Satan is currently bound through the whole church age, no longer deceiving the nations. But you see a lot of a spiritual vision in, in our millennial system. The kingdom is spiritual. Christ's reign is spiritual. And... Uh, and so forth. All right, lastly, we got to keep moving here. Uh, premillennialism, the finer major millennial view, derives its name from the unique belief that Jesus comes back before the millennial kingdom. So Christ comes back, then there's this millennial kingdom. Hence, premillennial. Sometimes just referred to as millennialism due to the belief uh, of a, a distinct kingdom on earth. Now, obviously, premillennials believe that the timing of the millennial kingdom is future because Jesus has not come back yet. So this is obviously future. This kingdom will never exist fully in this age uh, until Jesus comes back. Uh, but there's some differences as to how much of the kingdom is expressed in this age. A futurist view of prophecy obviously dominates the premill position. Whether you take the thousand years of Revelation 20 as literal or figurative, all premillennials believe that there's some intermediate kingdom be between the second coming of Christ and the eternal state. So in other words, Jesus comes back, then before the eternal state, the new heavens, new earth, there's some intermediate kingdom. However long it is, whatever happens, whatever it's like, Christ comes back, there's some reign on earth of some nature. If you believe that, well, that makes you by definition premillennial. Premillennials all believe that the, the fullness of the kingdom that's promised is yet future. But like I said, there's some disagreement among them about how much of that kingdom is expressed or inaugurated right now. I'm of the opinion that Christ most certainly inaugurated his kingdom rule right now. The kingdom is reflected in the church, that the church is an outpost, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom expands as people are saved. But this is still just an outpost. The fullness of the kingdom does come when Christ returns. Either way, though, again, all pre-mills see a distinct kingdom in the future after Christ returns. And the nature of this kingdom is mostly derived by just taking kingdom prophecies more or less literally. 
The spiritual elements of the kingdom are all there, as in the other views, but pre-mill is distinct in seeing an earthly material kingdom among the nations after Christ returns. That is quite unique to pre-millennialism. Now, so already that's probably a lot. You know, I'm just trying to keep track of all these different views and where you're just getting started. But like I said, I'm not really going to have time or ability to argue for or against these in any sufficient detail. I will tell you, we do hold to pre-millennialism here at this church. In the rest of this lesson, I'm going to speak from this perspective. Otherwise, we can't really get anywhere. If I could just mention, though, one basic line of support, I think perhaps the main line of support, it's just the plain, straightforward reading of Revelation 20, 1 through 6. That's where the millennium is mentioned. Revelation 20 doesn't tell us a whole lot about the nature of this kingdom. But what it, where it does stand out is in regards to the timing. In fact, that's the main point of Revelation 20. It tells us the timing of this kingdom in relation to the second coming. That's kind of the whole point of this debate. So why wouldn't you go straight to that text? Revelation 19 in no uncertain terms, describes the the full and future second coming of Christ. This is Jesus returning. And immediately after that, you get Revelation 20. That introduces and describes this millennial kingdom. And after this millennial kingdom, this thousand-year reign, whether that's a literal thousand years or a figurative thousand years, doesn't really matter. But after that comes final judgment, the eternal state. That's Revelation 21, 22. And premillennials contend that that the millennial kingdom of Revelation 20, uh, chapter 20, well, it takes place after Jesus returns in chapter 19 and before the new heavens and new earth in chapters 21 and 22. It's just kind of the, the straightforward reading of the, these chapters. This passage and even the greater context is viewed as a chronological or sequential unit. And so when you read it that way, Jesus clearly comes back right before this kingdom, so pre-millennial. Even further, you know, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through chapter 21, verse 8, it actually forms a unit in the book of Revelation. Serves as a transition between the destruction of Babylon the Great and the establishment of New Jerusalem. What takes place in between? The return of Jesus, the millennial kingdom, and the final judgment. In Revelation 19, 11 through 21, 8 depicts a series of eight sequential visions or scenes. Each of these eight scenes is introduced by the same phrase where John says, and then I saw, and then I saw, kai idon in the Greek. And really the simple grammatical, literary, and contextual reading of this passage leaves no doubt that it's just a sequential reading of events, a sequential recording of these eight events. And it reads that way, at least to me, it's pretty straightforward. The contention of all mills and post mills is that at chapter 20, verse 1 though, right? At chapter 20, verse 1. The reader is suddenly transported all the way back to the beginning of the church age. And so chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, which mentions the millennial kingdom and the binding of Satan, that describes not the time after Jesus returns, but the time before he returns. In my opinion, though, I think the fatal flaw to this view is that just there's nothing in the text that indicates a leap back to the beginning of the church age that has taken place. There's no evidence in the context whatsoever to tell the reader that chapter 20 verses 1 through 6 is a special case dealing with the church age. Really, to the contrary, chapter 20 verses 1 through 6 fits perfectly, normally, contextually, literally, grammatically, in the flow of 1911 through 2128. And don't forget, there's no chapter divisions in the original text of Scripture. This was just a scroll. Those have been inserted later. And so it's pretty arbitrary to conveniently jump back to the beginning of the church age in chapter 20, verse 1. The only reason, you, in my opinion, you get there is because your system of theology forces you to get there. Otherwise, you have to abandon all-mill or post-mill on paper. The text doesn't demand it. The text doesn't even suggest it. So I think if you're sticking to the plain reading of the text, well, you'll arrive at premillennialism. But that's just scratching the surface. There's a lot more that goes in that debate, a lot more. And we'll have to save that for some other time, at least to get a little view of the playing field and different views out there. And one more difference we need to cover before we get into at least an overview of things to come from this futurist premill perspective, at least from where we're coming at. One more difference here, number three, different ways of understanding Israel and the church different ways of understanding Israel and the church. This is another huge issue that could take months to unpack by itself. 
But just for the sake of exposure, a lot of division in these eschatological views concerns the relationship of Israel and the church. I'll try to give you the, like the short version of it. So everyone understands Israel was God's people in the Old Testament and that God made special covenants with them or promises. Genesis 12, Abrahamic covenant, God promises to Abraham and his descendants a land, a seed, and a blessing. Thereafter, those promises are picked up and expanded in future covenants. The Palestinian covenant expands the land promise, how God will give Israel this plot of land in Palestine as an inheritance forever. The Davidic covenant picks up on the seed promise that God will give Israel a special seed, a singular seed, a great son of David who will usher in this everlasting kingdom of righteousness. And then lastly, the new covenant picks up on the blessing promises where God promises to regenerate his people, forgive their sins, and dwell them with the Spirit, cause them to walk in his ways. So far, most would agree with all this. Thing is, though, you get into the text of the Old Testament, you start reading about all these promises God has made to Israel, and you actually read all the texts, all the stipulations, all the promises, all the details, you realize pretty quickly, like a lot of these have not been fully and literally fulfilled. Now, here's the thing. When we're dealing with end times, we're dealing with brothers in Christ. All of us in this debate, so to speak, let's presume and hope, have a high view of Scripture. We all believe God's Word is true. It will be fulfilled. Everything God says will come to pass. We're all we're going to believe that together. And so when you see that so much of what God said has not come to pass literally, we just have a simple question. We, we all believe God will fulfill His promises, question is, okay, the ones that have not been fulfilled, is he going to fulfill them literally or figuratively? Literally or spiritually? How do we sort that out? That's the contention here. Because everyone agrees God has not yet literally fulfilled many of his promises to national Israel. Now, if you still expect a literal fulfillment to a lot of these promises, well, then you're going to see them as still future because they haven't happened yet. And that's the position of most premillennials. That they tend to see national Israel as playing a large role in the future tribulation time and in that millennial kingdom. That's when God will finally fulfill all the stipulations of all his promises to the nation of Israel as a nation among all the nations. Now, others, though, believe God's promises to Israel have been fulfilled spiritually or figuratively. So they're still upholding God's word. They still have a high view of the word. They just believe it's being fulfilled spiritually. That these promises, they would say, were always meant to find their fulfillment in the church. And look, everyone likewise agrees that the church is the, the new people of God in the New Testament. And all mills and most post mills believe that the church has fulfilled most of God's promises to Israel. And so they're not expecting any future fulfillment. Most of them, for example, would say Israel's restoration to a nation in 1948 was an interesting coincidence, but has no bearing on eschatology. It's just something that happened. They're not expecting any future fulfillment. They believe God already made good on his promises to Israel, either in the past or in the present through the church. Now, again, I'm simplifying quite a bit here, and there are nuances to all this, but the notion that the church has replaced Israel in the plan of God or the promises of God, that's known as replacement theology or supersessionism replacement theology. Now, throughout most of church history, this whole debate has been largely either or. You're on one side or the other. You know, old dispensationalists used to promote a real strong discontinuity between Israel and the church, like radical, like they're, they're two different peoples of God. They have two new covenants. They have two destinies. The new heavens belongs to the church. The new earth belongs to Israel, just like a, a radical discontinuity between Israel and the church. And on the flip side, supersessionists have a radical continuity between Israel and the church. They're really conflated together. The church is Israel. I actually take a mediating view. There are similarities between Israel and the church. but similarity does not prove identity. No, to the contrary, the New Testament is very clear that the church is not to be equated with national Israel or even spiritual Israel. That being said, right now, Look, a believing remnant of national Israel exists. You might call them true Israel, spiritual Israel. Where is true Israel right now? True Israel right now is in the church. 
The church is not true Israel, but true Israel is found in the church. The believing remnant of all the nations is found in the church. Ever since the time of Christ, Israel as a nation has been cut off in unbelief. Their believing remnant, true Israel, still exists inside the church. What does that mean for Israel as a nation, though, a national entity? God promised in Jeremiah 31 that Israel would be a nation before him forever. So what do we make of of the nation of Israel? The nation may not be replaced by the church, but does national Israel still have a future? Now here we, we would say yes, but in contrast to a traditional view, I don't see a future for national Israel as taking place outside of the church, but rather inside of the church. In other words, we see a future time when the church will incorporate not only true Israel, but also national Israel. Israel will exist in the future as a national entity. I think the New Testament expects it. The Old Testament outright demands it. But Israel will not exist as an entity in competition with the church, as if there's two different peoples of God running side by side. You have to understand what the church is. The church is God's new covenant community comprised of all the nations, all the believers from all the nations. In contrast to the old covenant, which was just one nation. And ethnic, ethnically, not even uh, so uh, salvifically. But in the church, you have people from different nations coming together despite their differences. And they're united soteriologically in Christ, meaning in salvation. They're united in Christ. And so there's this great unity in the church. The church is the one people of God united under the one head, Christ, for all time. The church is the culmination of God's plan for his people. I would most certainly say that. But inclusion in the church does not obliterate distinctions among its members. God's plan has always been for all the nations. Those nations come together as one in the church salvifically, but they still can retain national distinctives and even roles in the church. I mean, don't we see this playing out at an individual level in the church? At the church, individuals get saved. You join the church. You're different. You're distinct. You have a different spiritual gift, different gender, different background. We come together. We're one in the church, but that oneness does not actually erase gender roles. doesn't erase our, our status other elsewise. doesn't erase our spiritual gifts. We can be one in the church. It still function differently. And I see the same thing at a national scale where the church is one, all the nations as one, but without obliterating the national distinctives of Israel, for example, which God promised would have a certain gifting, certain privilege as a nation among the nations. So within this scheme, national Israel can fit perfectly in the church when the nation turns to Christ, partakes of new covenant salvation, and they'll come to share a salvific unity with the people of God while still retaining their distinct identity, function, and role in the kingdom that God has always promised them. So it's not so much an either or, but a little bit of a both and. To put it another way, this understanding of the church as the new covenant people of God, it's really fully compatible with the Old Testament's kingdom expectation of Israel as a unique nation that's fulfilling a specific role among the nations. And God's plan has always been for all the nations, not just one, not just Israel, but all of them. The church is that plan. Yet national Israel is not going to be excluded from that plan from the nations. They're hardened. They've been cut off in unbelief, but they will be grafted back in in the end after the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So this is a bit of a a middle view. It sees some continuity, some discontinuity between Israel and the church. At least that's where I land my understanding of Israel and the church. All right, well, we just spent a little bit over half our time just exposing you to differences. I didn't even get into dispensationalism and covenantalism. I don't think it's that profitable, actually, at least for our time tonight. There's more, uh, but we got to move on. I think we'll spend the second half of our time now giving you a bit of an overview of future events. That's important to do. Look, eschatology, it's the most diverse branch of theology. Part of that has to do with the fact that we're not dealing with salvation issues, meaning you can believe this or that and still go to heaven. It's not going to be labeled heresy. 
And that's why the church throughout the ages has rightly held different views of end times with charity. Like, you can believe that and still be my brother. You can believe that, we can still fellowship together. These, these aren't salvation issues. They matter in how we relate to the future, what we expect and things to come. The biggest functional difference really is in expectations of the future and a bit in, in what we do in the world today. But it, it shouldn't divide us. It still matters. We want to know what the future holds. Everybody does. I can't answer that question from all these different perspectives. This is just one evening, a little survey. But I think to finish your time, I'll, I'll give you another survey here. I'll just at least let you know, at least from our premillennial perspective, uh, what the future holds, what we believe the Bible says uh, it pertains to things to come. A bit of an overview of future events. So let's do that. I'll give you six Kind of broad headers here. First would be the rapture. First would be rapture. So first event that occurs uh, after this church age is the rapture. Some identified time in the future, Jesus descends from heaven. He's not returning to the earth per the second coming. Rather, all true believers are instead caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And this catching up of believers is what's known as the rapture. It comes from First Thessalonians. 4, 16 through 17. It says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. That phrase caught up together, the Latin of that term is from where we get the word rapture. You can also see 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53, John 14, 1 through 3, although we won't have time to look at all these passages. The rapture of believers will be instantaneous. It's tied to the first resurrection. The dead in Christ are raised first, glorified, given resurrected bodies. Then those who are alive and raptured pass from life to resurrected life without going through a natural death. Jesus will take these saints with them to heaven whereby the church avoids the wrath of the tribulation. Now, all that is from what's called a a pre-tribulational perspective, right? It's called a pre-tribulational rapture. Not everyone believes that. That that means this rapture takes place before the seven-year tribulation. So pre-tribulational. Not everyone believes that. Some uh, don't think it takes place at the beginning. Some would put it at the middle of the tribulation. That's the mid-tribulational rapture view. Some put it at the end of the tribulation, the post-tribulational rapture view. Now, look, the timing of the rapture, it's not actually stated in the three main rapture texts. All views infer the timing from other facts, other beliefs. I'll just mention that a pre-tribulational rapture is based on the fact that you compare rapture passages and second coming passages, and that there's quite a few differences suggesting they might be two discrete events. Also, God has promised to deliver his church from wrath. Many would say that suggests the church escaping the wrath of the tribulation. It's also very interesting. The book of Revelation, the first few chapters, he mentions the church nonstop. But in chapters 6 through 19, which is describing the tribulation, the church is not mentioned once. But Israel is everywhere. Israel comes back into focus. Many likewise would take that to mean that the church has been raptured. It probably happened before the tribulation. And this time is God focusing on Israel. We do hold to a pre-tribulational rapture here, which means that the next event on the timetable is the rapture. But I always add the caveat that if there's one area of eschatology that gets blown way out of proportion it's the rapture. It's only mentioned in a few texts. We're only told a little. It is described as a mystery. This is new revelation in the New Testament. But we're just told a snippet. So much is still mystery. Uh, some little has actually been revealed. And so we should definitely regard brothers who have different views on the nature or the timing of the rapture with charity. Just not a lot is actually said about it. But we are told to expect uh, this event. Now, moving on, number two. At least according to our position, after the rapture would be the tribulation. You read Daniel 9, 24 through 27, Matthew, Matthew chapter 24, or the book of Revelation chapter 6 through 18, and, and obviously a lot, lot more. 
But shortly, if not immediately after the rapture, this time of tribulation takes place on the earth. It's also known as Daniel's 70th week or the great tribulation. It's a a seven-year period of severe judgment on the earth. This is the culmination of man's rebellion leading up to Christ's return. There will be a great loss of life. During this time, you add it all up, it looks like about 80% of the world's population is lost. And unless the time were shortened, Christ said in Matthew 24, none would live, none would survive. But many will be saved during the tribulation as well. There are two primary purposes to this seven-year period. The first is just judgment. This is a time when, when wickedness has reached a fever pitch on the earth and God will tolerate it no longer. His wrath is kindled and he pours it out on the earth and the wicked are judged. Now, harsh consequences comes for man's rebellion. The second purpose, though, is salvation. Many are saved, perhaps the most ever in history, but also specifically Israel. Many Gentiles are saved during the tribulation, but Israel seems to be the focus of God's redemptive historical plan. Revelation mentions how Israel will be heavily persecuted during this time, but many will call on Jesus as their Savior. The tribulation will end with Israel being nationally converted, restored, and brought into the new covenant, which still has not happened for the nation of Israel. Now, during the tribulation, Satan's activity will be greatly intensified, and he will work through two main figures. I've heard of them before, the Antichrist figure and the false prophet figure. It's completing what some call like an unholy trinity. The Antichrist will set himself up as God or Christ on the earth. The false prophet is a religious leader who's able to work signs and wonders, convincing people to worship the Antichrist. Now, we can't form like a strict monthly calendar of the tribulation, but a broad look at these seven years. The time period begins, according to Daniel 927, when Antichrist makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. That's the the clear beginning of the seven years. And he makes a covenant with Israel. Israel is back in the land. The temple has been rebuilt. Sacrifices are going on. Israel knows peace during the first half, first three and a half years of this tribulation time, despite the cataclysm going on in the world. Speaking of which, the first three and a half years, the wrath of God begins to be poured out on the earth. This is represented in the book of Revelation with the seven seal judgments. These judgments include famine, earthquakes, war, persecution, false teachers, not like we see them today. The apostate church grows during this time. During the first half, this this apostate church is closely associated with the Antichrist. But at the midpoint, the Antichrist turns on the church, eliminates it, and sets himself up to be worshipped in all the world. Speaking of the midpoint, that's a big deal, the three and a half year mark. The Antichrist is killed. Revelation 13 describes how he receives a fatal wound to the head, but he's then brought back to life, his own type of resurrection. This astonishes the world and enables him to be set, to be set up as God, to, to be worshipped. He breaks the covenant with Israel, and he begins a major persecution of the Jews. Temple worship is ended. He sets an idol of himself up in the temple committing what's referred to as the abomination of desolation. Again, Daniel 9.27 and Matthew 24. It's at this point the Antichrist effectively becomes the dictator of the world. Jews are heavily persecuted, but they are supernaturally preserved by God in the wilderness during this time. This is their, their next wilderness wandering. The figures called the two witnesses arise and evangelize during this time with their signs and wonders. Many are saved, but many are martyred. Almost as soon as you're saved, you're you're probably going down. This is also likely the time of the trumpet and bowl judgments in the book of Revelation. These are more severe. A third of the earth's vegetation, sea life, and fresh water are destroyed with the trumpet judgments. A third of the luminaries are darkened. A third of mankind is killed. The seventh trumpet judgment introduces the seven bowl judgments. These are just... The, the very end. You know you're close to the end. These are extremely severe. All the seas are turned to blood. All fresh water is lost. The sun scorches the earth. There's a supernatural darkness. The Euphrates dries up. All the nations gather to a place called Armageddon or Har Megiddo. Very similar to the 10 plagues on Egypt, just like globally and exacerbated the type of wrath being poured out on the world. 
And regarding Armageddon, you've heard the buzzword. It's not actually a single battle. Rather, Revelation 16 and 14 describe it as a larger military campaign stretching some 180 miles in the Middle East through the plains of Megiddo, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, Edom. This is collectively known as the wine press of God's wrath. And when Christ returns, he will tread that wine wine press. At some point, though, as the nations have come together to consume and devour Israel in the promised land, the sign of the Son of Man appears, Matthew 24, 30, and the world knows Christ is about to return. This leads us to number three, the second coming. Rapture, tribulation, third, the second coming. Let's read Revelation 19 and 20, read Matthew 25, and obviously a, a lot, lot more. But at the very end of the tribulation... Jesus will finally return to the earth. He touches down on the Mount of Olives, right where he left at the ascension. And, and then that moment, Israel is rescued from their imminent destruction. And the unbelieving masses led by Antichrist will be defeated and judged by Christ himself. Christ's return will be seen by all, known by all. The ungodly will grieve at their impending doom, knowing there's nothing they can do about it. The godly will rejoice, knowing they're saved. Now, several other events take place in conjunction with Christ's return. All who survived the tribulation will be judged. A judgment takes place not long after Christ returns. It's a separation of believers from unbelievers. Those who were preserved alive, a remnant, will pass into the millennial kingdom. Unbelievers will be executed and descend to hell. This, par- this is described in the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the sheep and goats judgments in Matthew 25. Now at the second coming, that unholy trinity will also be dealt with, where the Antichrist and the false prophet, they are immediately thrown into the lake of fire. But Satan is not. This gets into that Revelation 20 passage. Satan is bound in the abyss during the duration of the millennial kingdom. He will have no influence over the earth for these 1,000 years while Jesus reigns. Until the very, very end, when he's released for a short time. But the binding of Satan is necessary for this kingdom. And in Christ's return, he's preparing the way to establish this earthly millennial reign. So we can move right into number four, the millennial kingdom. Rapture, tribulation, second coming. Number four, millennial kingdom. This is Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. Isaiah chapter 11 has a lot to say. Isaiah chapter 65 has a lot to say about this kingdom. Shortly after the return of Christ, the millennial kingdom begins. This is the earthly expression of, of God's rule, but it has many dimensions. And first, this millennium will have a, a political dimension or a national dimension. We have Jesus ruling as king over the nations from Jerusalem. This is a fulfillment of Davidic covenant and many other promises expecting the Messiah to reign on earth among his people and among the nations. Israel will be restored as a holy nation before God gathered into the land, fulfilling the land promises. But Israel will not have an exclusive relationship to King Jesus. All the nations All the redeemed of all the nations will seek and worship the Lord. And Israel will point the nations to the Lord as always intended. The millennial kingdom will also have a a distinct spiritual dimension. With Satan bound and demonic forces gone from the earth, a deception will be checked. With the evil world system annihilated, corruption will be checked. And most of all, you have the risen glorified Savior present. Righteousness will reign on the earth. Peace, joy, righteousness, and worship are the pervading spiritual characteristics of the millennium, which are different from any other age. Now, although Satan is gone and the world system is gone, sin still remains in the millennium. Because those who enter the millennium with non-glorified bodies, as well as their offspring, as they repopulate the earth, they're, they're still sinners. The flesh remains. Sin will be dealt with as Christ rules with a rod of iron, but sin remains. There's still death in this millennial reign. Now, Jesus will be the center of personal worship during the millennium. All the nations will stream to Jerusalem and worship Christ. A new temple will be built, and the glory of the Lord will rest in the temple again. 
You have some amazing scenes of worship described. Finally, the millennial kingdom will have a, a special physical or earthly dimension where the present earth will change. Aspects of the curse will be lifted. The earth becomes productive again, like the Garden of Eden. Vast deserts are described as being turned into lush forests. The animal kingdom undergoes a transformation. Sickness seems to be banished. People enjoy long lifespans such that, Isaiah says, if someone dies at the age of 100, they're thought to have died young. Their days were cut short. Lifespans seem to go back to the days before Noah. Death still exists because sin still exists, but many other aspects of the curse have been lifted. Like I said, the millennial kingdom will be populated at first only with believers. Some of these believers are already resurrected, already glorified, the saints serving as priests of God for the thousand years. Others were survivors of the tribulation. They enter the millennium with their non-glorified bodies. These are the ones who repopulate the earth and they're still capable of dying. The offspring of all these people, they, they need salvation just like everyone else needs salvation. They still need to come to saving faith in Christ. Granted, Christ is reigning uh, on the throne at the time, but nonetheless, unless God works in their heart and brings them to life, they won't be saved. So during this millennial reign, it seems like most will be saved, but some will not. There's a, a group of hardened unbelievers, and at the very end of this millennial reign, uh, Satan is released for a time to, to deceive the nations one last time. And he gathers all of the, the unelect from all the nations to lead a final rebellion at the end of the millennium. But this time there's not even a battle. Just Jesus speaks and it's all over. The, this ends really human history. The rebellion is crushed. This millennial kingdom ends and you move into final judgments. That's number five. Final judgments. After the millennial reign, you read Revelation 20. Roughly verses 7 through 15. Also 2 Peter 3, 7 through 10. You, you see some of this as well. But after Satan's final rebellion is crushed, a series of, of judgments and final events take place. First, Satan is judged. Antichrist, false prophet were already dealt with, but now Satan himself is thrown into that lake of fire. This is an eternal destination. They will never escape. This is their final judgment. Secondly, there's a final judgment for all unbelievers. This is known as the great white throne judgment, where all the unbelievers from all the ages are resurrected, given a resurrected body and brought to stand before the Lord. Believers have no part in this judgment. Unbelievers are judged for their deeds, and they too are all cast into the same lake of fire, an eternal place of judgment. Finally, the present heavens and the earth are destroyed. This is a form of judgment on this sin-cursed creation, which is no longer fitting as an eternal home for the saints. Uh, the, the present universe is completely destroyed by fire and replaced by new heavens and a new earth. And this brings us to finally, number six, the eternal state. The, the last thing to come that's revealed is, we just call it the eternal state. You read again, Revelation 21, 22 for this. But with the creation of the new heavens and new earth, the eternal state begins. This is the full, the final, the lasting expression of God's kingdom reign with his people. Jesus reigns as king of kings with God's people forever. Redeemed man lives in perfect fellowship with God forever. Sin, Satan, and death are eliminated and there will never again be unbelief, rebellion, or disobedience. Instead, eternity is just full of the Lord's peace, joy, and righteousness. Many aspects of this eternal existence are unknown to us, probably because we couldn't fully comprehend them now anyway. But the last two chapters of the Bible reveal some things to know about what this place will be like. After destroying and remaking the present heavens and earth, God creates a new heavens, a new earth, this new earth appears to resemble this present earth, although it says there are no oceans. A new earth is given as an eternal dwelling place for the redeemed, along with the eternal Lord. It appears that God's intentions for man in the Garden of Eden are, are restored. 
and then some. But ultimately, that the best part of the new heavens and the new earth is that, well, the Lord is there. It's just, it's just where the Lord is, where we get to be with the Lord for all eternity. Time seems to exist in this eternal state. There's a new heavens, and they seem to have the same function as the first heavens. By heavens, by the way, it's talking about the stars, the luminaries. No sun or moon are, are, are stated. In fact, there, there is no sun or moon, but luminaries exist and likely serve the same function as our stars, namely for the keeping of days, months, and years, as it talks about with this creation. Also, it says the tree of life bears its fruit each month. So there, there seems to be time. There seems to be meaningful activity in the eternal state, learning, working, serving God, just like man was intended before the fall. And now we have a new perfect environment in which righteousness dwells. The eternal state is also special because of what is not there. Satan and demons are gone forever. Sin is absent forever. All believers will be fully glorified with resurrected bodies. And along with the angels, they will never sin again. And with sin gone, the results of sin are gone forever. Death, pain, sorrow, regret, anger, suffering, sadness, tears have no place in the eternal state. The former things have passed away. But again, the most special element of this eternal state is simply this is where God dwells with his people. They behold his glory. They see the face of Christ. There's a city called New Jerusalem. It's the living space for all people and the Lamb. The city has the dimensions of a cube. It's the same as the Holy of Holies in the temple. Only in the new heavens and new earth, there's no temple. And God dwells immediately with his people. There's no separation. We, we live in the Holy of Holies with the Lord. God tabernacles with his people directly. There is an unhindered fellowship with God and the Lamb and his people forever. We will see God's face and live. And we'll worship like never before. And that's where the Bible ends. Tonight was quite the whirlwind. We finished right six on the dot. Quite the whirlwind. And, and we're, we're really just scratching the surface. But I hope that helps you at least, at least get some bearings. We can look out on this playing field and at least know. You can start keeping score. You can know the different sides. You can see the different issues. And at least have a little better understanding of the field. And at least the pre-mill perspective for whatever it's worth. But let this be perhaps even a, a launching place for you for your own study of the word. If you want to take it further, you know, see me after. I can recommend some further reading in scripture and some books as well. But for now, it's a fitting place to end. I think like we did this morning, just, just the hope of, of being with Christ, seeing Christ, knowing him, being with him forever. That's the, the consistent hope. Whatever your view of end times, we all have that same hope of just longing for Christ to return, to be with him in the, the final kingdom forever when, when death is no more. That's our longing, our, our ultimate hope. Let's set our eyes on that hope. I'll just leave you with the last few verses of the Bible. Revelation 22, verses 20 through 21. It says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. That's Christ. And so John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And that's still our prayer. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We just long for him to get the show on the road, right? I'm ready. Let's just kind of finish this world off. You know, I wouldn't be too sad about that, but we trust his will for that. We'll pray, come quickly. In the meantime, though, we're here to be about his business, evangelizing the lost, making disciples, and serving him until that day. Apart from that, though, I think we'll leave it off right there. Let's finish up in prayer and end our time. Our Father in heaven, we, we exalt your name. And uh, although we've learned so much about the, what the word says uh, about things to come, we know one thing is, is clear. You, you win in the end. Your righteousness wins. You've never been off the throne. Although this world has gone awry after the first two chapters of the Bible and, and sin and Satan, suffering, death have reigned and ruined and wrecked your creation, you've, you've had a plan all along for your greater glory in magnifying your son, both in judging and saving now, you, you know what you're doing. You're sovereign king on the throne. And we, we get to see that now and appreciate that now. We get to bow the knee now in faith and love and humility and be with you then. We thank you for your grace in revealing truth to us. Keep our eyes fixed on things above. Let us remember we're citizens of this heaven. 
And may we live like that now. May we live now as if we belong to you, because we do. And seek and strive after your kingdom, your righteousness here below. We long for Christ to return, but may we not uh, sit and do nothing as we, as we wait, so to speak. Help us to be busy to do what you've called us to do. Make disciples of all the nations. Pursue righteousness and serve you with all we have. We trust you for the future. We're grateful for the hope we have. May we keep our eyes fixed on this hope and on the author and perfecter of our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.